threat of mutiny in Russia seems to have subsided for now. The leader of the Wagner Group says Russian mercenaries have turned back on their march to Moscow. The Kremlin says he won't be charged for his role in the aborted mutiny. What does this all mean for the mercenaries Russia and Ukraine? For Saturday, June 24th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Also, it's been a year since the constitutional right to an abortion was overturned in the U.S. We hear from those who want to restrict access to abortion more and from those who've had frightening experiences with reproductive health care. My husband still has nightmares about it. And we talked to singer Jason Isbell about his new album, Weather Vanes, which is all about accepting, maybe even embracing, the uncertainty and complications of life. I've always been the type of person who thought, you know, if there's a problem, I need to solve it. Sometimes your job is just to listen. All of that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The head of a Russian mercenary group says his forces are ending their march on the Russian capital. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. In a message posted to social media, the head of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, said his mercenaries had led a march for justice that took them to the outskirts of Moscow in under 24 hours, but it was now time to return home. Prigozhin said he'd taken the decision to avoid shedding Russian blood. The sudden about-face appeared to hit on a political crisis that grew out of months of infighting between Russia's top generals and Prigozhin over the state of the war effort in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin denounced Prigozhin as a traitor, even as he appeared to accept assistance from his ally, Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, aimed at defusing tensions. Lukashenko's press office said the Belarusian leader had carried out negotiations with Prigozhin throughout the day before securing a promise to turn his forces around. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. And the Kremlin says Prigozhin won't face charges and will be sent to Belarus. In North Carolina, one year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Vice President Harris called on Congress to restore federal reproductive freedoms. Nick Delacanal from member station WFAE has more. Supporters cheered as Harris condemned Republican efforts to restrict abortion access and called for more legislation helping families and pregnant women. More than a dozen states have banned nearly all abortions over the last year. Bans in eight states have been blocked by courts. Next week, North Carolina will ban abortions after 12 weeks, with some exceptions. Protests were held elsewhere, marking one year since Roe was overturned, including in Washington, New York, and Atlanta. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanal in Charlotte. A powerful storm system is moving east after tornadoes struck Texas and Wyoming this week. NPR's Amy Held has more. A tornado killed several people in the Texas town of Matador this week. Billy Campbell lives there. Unreal moment seeing everything flatten. Today, severe thunderstorms from another system are moving across Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois. Tomorrow, they're forecast to hit parts of Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio. Yesterday, the system did tornado damage in Wyoming, flipping a bus and empty train cars and injuring multiple people at a mine. Meteorologist Matt Mosier says it was one of the most violent kinds of storms. Anytime you have a storm super that lasts you know, three, four hours. Those are very well-organized systems, and so those are anomalous. By Monday, the system is forecast to reach the East Coast, all the way from the Carolinas to New England. Amy Held, NPR News. And the storms today could bring hail, damaging winds, and tornadoes. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Chemical giant 3M will pay $10 billion to settle lawsuits over chemical contamination in drinking water supplies across the country. The chemicals called PFAS do not break down over time, and they've been linked to cancer and other medical issues. Boston University School of Public Health toxicologist Wendy Heiger Bernays says PFAS chemicals are in clothing, household products, drinking water, and firefighting foam made by 3M. There are certainly communities in Massachusetts, right, who have been poisoned. You'll rarely hear me say that. Massachusetts has already allocated $170 million for PFAS cleanup. Governor Maura Healy is traveling to Ireland this weekend. Next week, she'll address Ireland's Senate. The governor says she will also tell Irish business leaders about the benefits of expanding to Massachusetts. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will serve as acting governor while Healy is away. State Senate President Karen Spilka heads to Israel today. She's going on a week-long trip organized by the National Conference of State Legislatures. She'll be with state lawmakers from all over the country. And Bristol County Sheriff's Correctional Officer Academy has 22 new graduates. It's the largest graduating class in five years. Newly appointed officer Jacob Kane was co-valedictorian He says this class got extra training on subjects like de-escalation, implicit bias, and dealing with mental illness. Thankfully, we um, dealt with a lot of like different scenarios in the academy where we were able to um, use those skills. So I think that'll definitely help out. And this is the first class to have a nine-week training instead of the traditional eight weeks. Red Sox-White Sox 1-1 in the fourth inning in Chicago, the Revolution hosting Toronto at Gillette tonight. Mostly cloudy tonight, a slight chance of showers, a low in the upper 60s. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance of showers, upper 70s. A chance of showers on Monday, otherwise mostly cloudy on Monday, upper 70s. And rain Tuesday, upper 70s. It's 77 degrees at 506. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. In less than 24 hours, Russia has seen the threat of armed mutiny rise and just as quickly fall away, at least for now. It started with Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin venting his anger on the Russian military establishment for its handling of Ukraine. Then a full-scale mobilization of his mercenary troops and a threatened march on Moscow. Overnight, they did take control of the southern Russian city Rostov-on-Don, which woke up to the sound of armored vehicles rumbling through the streets. In response, Russian President Vladimir Putin made an emergency address to the nation, promising tough action against those involved, calling their actions a stab in the back. But just as quickly, the march on Moscow was halted, and Prigozhin announced his troops would return to base. Tonight, Moscow is in a state of alert, and that's where NPR's Charles Maines joins us from. Charles, good evening. Good evening. A lot to talk about here. Let's start with what we know about what changed Prigozhin's mind. Why did he back down? You know, Scott, as your interest suggests, this has been a really wild uh, 24 hours. Uh, in, in the latest audio message posted to his social media account, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin noted that in that period, you know, his mercenaries had marched from southern Russia all the way to the gates of Moscow, only to have a change of heart. Let's listen. Сейчас 
наступил тот момент, когда кровь может пролиться. So here Prigozhin claims that this whole time not a drop of Wagner blood had been shed, but as his forces were closing in on the capital, he said that could no longer guarantee that would be the case. And so he was ordering his troops to turn around and go back to base. And, and since then, we've heard that Prigozhin's Wagner forces are in fact pulling out of Rostov-on-Don as well, uh, just as quickly as they entered. How has Putin reacted and how has the Kremlin re as a whole reacted? Well, this morning, President Putin made clear without ever saying Prigozhin's name that he saw Prigozhin as a traitor uh, who would pay a serious price for this rebellion, uh, this stab in the back reference that you noted in your intro. Uh, and, and the federal security services, the FSB here, launched a criminal case against the Wagner leader for inciting a mutiny. Uh, and yet it now appears that Putin, too, has had a change of heart uh, in that the Kremlin appears to have gotten assist from a surprise guest in this story, that's Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko. Mm -hmm. uh, Lukashenko's press office said with Kremlin permission, the Belarusian leader had offered his services as a mediator in this. Uh, and in a series of calls with Prigozhin throughout the day, Lukashenko finally got him to agree to stand down. Now, in turn, the Kremlin says these criminal charges against Prigozhin will be dropped. And Prigozhin is moving, get this, uh, to Belarus. And finally, the Kremlin says it won't be punishing Wagner fighters who took part in this mutiny, mutiny out, of, out of an account of their military service for Russia in Ukraine. In other words, all peers forgiven. All, all the peers forgiven is, is usually not, is not, not the way that Vladimir Putin operates. So I, I guess going forward, does this really signal the end of Prigozhin's political career in Russian politics? Yeah, you know, uh, Prigozhin is a creature, really, of Putin's own making. I mean, he started off as someone that Putin tasked with running uh, unsavory errands for the Kremlin, you know, things like troll farms and running shadow war operations in Syria, uh, only to emerge as a public figure, uh, and with it certainly what looked like political ambitions, uh, particularly as he adopted this populist persona of giving kind of straight talk about the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, setting Pogrosian out to pasture in Belarus would seem a way to remove him as a political headache or possible rival for the Kremlin going forward. Uh, yet, even if Prigozhin is departing Russia for Belarus, it doesn't resolve these larger problems that caused this crisis to begin with. You know, we still have Wagner fighters angry over the way the war is being conducted. If anything, that's gone from a subject of you know, internet intrigue uh, into being something out in the open. Uh, we're also left with Prigozhin's now public charge that the generals sold Putin and the country on the invasion of Ukraine under false pretenses, claiming an imminent attack by Ukraine that just wasn't happening. Uh, that charge is just left to fester. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if Prigozhin recedes in the background, he's effectively humiliated the defense ministry for everyone to see. What has it been like to be in Moscow over the past two days? You know, all day we've had these reports of authorities, you know, barricading the highways to the south of the city, you know, with the armored vehicles all in preparation for this Wagner convoy. Uh, yet as I walked around the city today in the city center, you know, Moscow felt strangely normal. You know, there were people out in parks and cafes. Uh, it, it's Saturday in the summer, so it's, you know, it's nice weather. Yet on the few occasions I did notice someone glued to their phone, you got the feeling they were reading the news. And the one word I kept hearing was bardak. Uh, that's Russian for chaos. That's, that's a good word for it. NPR's Charles Maynes in Moscow. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for more on this, we turn now to former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Let me put it this way. What do you think is going on here? I don't know. Uh, I want to be honest with you. A lot's changed in the last 24 hours. And yeah. to... Uh, say that we know exactly what's going on. I'm not prepared to say that. I'm surprised by a lot of things. 
I'm surprised that Prigozhin went into Rostov so easily and captured the city with no fighting. I'm surprised that they marched out a couple hundred kilometers outside of Moscow with no fighting. Usually when there's mutinies or coups, there's been fighting. And now I'm surprised he's going to Belarus. Yeah. I would not have expected that he would go there. What was your response to this news that that charges will not be fire, fired, filed? I feel like Vladimir Putin is not somebody who calls somebody a traitor and a few hours later says, everything's fine. Very unusual for Putin. And you're exactly right. Not, did he, not only did he call him a traitor, he went on national television and told the entire country he was a traitor. And hours later, he allowed his partner, Mr. Lukashenko, the president of, of Belarus, to cut a deal to let him go free with no charges. That's extremely unusual for Putin. I think it's a sign of his weakness, uh, that he is not in control of the situation and he's choosing between uh, bad and worse out- outcomes. So you think in your mind, there's no question that whatever this possible resolution is, Putin is weaker than he was before it began? Yes. I mean, how else can one describe this? Uh, These are two Russian armies that instead of fighting the Ukrainian army, were gearing up to fight each other. Uh, Mr. Prigozhin was at least doing a mutiny and maybe a coup. uh, And Putin did not look like he was in control of this situation at all. He talked a really tough game. Uh, several hours ago when he spoke to the the people, but he was rather feckless in his response to this mutiny, this coup. Uh, That suggests that he's much weaker today than he was just 24 hours ago. You have been predicting for a long time, along with many others, that that the Ukraine war could endanger Putin's regime as it's gone so poorly for Russia. Did the specifics of what has happened here, as far as we know what they are right now, did the specifics of this particular threat surprise you? Not the specifics in terms of who the actors were. Uh, I've been talking about this for a long time, like you said, but I was surprised by how fast Prigozhin could get his forces to seize one of the largest cities in all of Russia uh, without a fight. That surprised me. What do you think this means for the war in Ukraine going forward? The Wagner Group has played such a big role in it for Russia. I mean, the, the Kremlin has said that, that that all will be forgiven for the soldiers who participated, but it just seems hard to me to envision marching on your own country, then turning around and rejoining the lines with Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. I agree with you entirely. I think uh, for morale purposes, this is a disaster for both the Wagner forces that allegedly are now going to join the, the conventional Russian army, but also for the Russian army that are fighting there. Uh, I think it's an opportunity, I hope, for the Ukrainians Uh, to succeed uh, faster with their counteroffensive. And here I agree with Prigozhin. At at one point in one of his missives last night, he described and explained why this war was a mistake and a disaster. And they've been lying to you from the Kremlin. I hope that message gets out to Russian soldiers and to Russian people as well. Does Prigozhin represent a continued threat to Putin at this point? Yes, I think. I, I, I will be surprised if he just goes to Belarus and, and retires for the rest of his time. He has become a populist figure. His soldiers were cheered as they left Rostov. Uh, and, and I just cannot imagine that he just fades away. I think he presents a real problem for Putin for the future. And I just want to go back to this point of of Putin saying he will not be charged, or the Kremlin, rather, announcing he will not be charged, because without speculating too much, there is a clear, very long trend of how Putin responds to political threats, and this does not seem to fit in them. You're exactly right. I mean, think about the paradox here. 
Mr. Carter Murza, uh, who was just sentenced for 25 years in jail for mildly criti criticizing the war, yet Prigozhin threatens to overthrow the Russian military and he doesn't face any charges and goes to Belarus. That is something we have not seen ever in Putin's Russia. And I think it underscores just how weak he is right now. And what 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 are you going to be looking for in the next day or so in, in terms of getting a sense of this crisis has immediately calmed or it might flare up again? What do you think the key things to keep an eye out are? Uh, two or three things. First, it's been alleged that as part of the deal, Prigozhin forced out Gerasimov, General Gerasimov, who's the commander of the Russian armed forces. That has not been confirmed, but that will be very interesting to see if that was true. And second, does Prigozhin, from his new post in Belarus, continue to criticize the Russian armed forces? He's got a big social media presence. Or does he now go silent? And was that part of the deal for him to remain alive and in exile? Do you uh, think he's at risk physically, questions. personally at risk in Belarus? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would be very concerned if I were him for his health and his safety. How does the how does what happened over the past twenty four hours stack up to you to you know the the coup attempts of the nineties the other unrest we've seen over the years in about thirty seconds is this going to be a major moment in Putin's presidency? Without question, it's the weakest moment of his presidency. It's the strongest threat to him, and it undercuts the image of Putin the great, Putin mm -hmm. the powerful, Putin supported by everyone. Mm -hmm. He's not supported by everyone inside Russia. That's former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges, babson.edu MBA. Comedian Bethany Van Delft is hosting the Moth Story Slam on Tuesday, July 11th at City Space. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's Blooming Courtyard, GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The head of the Wagner Mercenary Group says his team is returning to their bases after an agreement brokered by Belarus's president to end the march on Moscow. The Kremlin says Yevgeny Prigozhin won't face charges and will head to Belarus. Hollywood directors overwhelmingly voted to ratify a deal with the studios. It's the first of three bargaining agreements to be approved. This deal gives around a 13 percent pay hike and bans live ammo from sets, that among other things. In Montana, a bridge that crosses Yellowstone River collapsed overnight, causing portions of a freight train to plunge into the water below the town of Columbus, about 40 miles west of Billings. Montana rail officials say the train crew is safe and no injuries have been reported. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Today marks one year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. Still, some opponents of abortion rights say the movement has a long way to go. Here's Sarah Bowden of WESA reporting from the National Right to Life's annual convention. This year, it's in Pittsburgh. Organizers kicked off today with a quick moment of celebration. Happy anniversary! Carol Tobias is president of the National Right to Life Committee. She recalls what it was like last year when the news of the high court's decision broke. A lot of tears, of joy, um, cries of excitement, and then it was kind of impressive. Everybody sat back down, kept on going with the general sessions and the workshops, because we knew we had work to do. Not everyone at the conference was elated. Destiny Herden de la Rosa is a self-described pro-life feminist. She believes that life begins at conception and that abortion ends that human life. But while people were hugging and high-fiving, Herden de la Rosa says she was shocked. I actually went up to my room and cried. She says people will continue to terminate unwanted pregnancies, whether it's legal or not. The Supreme Court didn't change that. Right now, fertility is absolutely a liability for females. Still, nothing has changed other than the law. The heart of the issue, she says, is a lack of resources, such as affordable housing and health care access. On that, she finds common ground with abortion rights supporters, who she knows in Texas, where she lives. You know, if you're truly pro-choice, let's make sure that uh, pregnant people actually feel like they do have a choice here. And, you know, we need access to all of the options. The need for a stronger social safety net is something that conference attendees bring up a lot, both in conversation with me and each other. Maria Gallagher is the legislative director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Because I think that you have to have a living wage for people. And I think that it's important for us as a state to pursue policies that promote families and promote life. And that includes our economic sphere. For one thing, Gallagher wants to expand funds that provide services, such as counseling and temporary housing to people faced with unplanned pregnancies. And she thinks educational opportunities and health care access are key. We need to have those conversations now because we're in the post-Row era. And if we don't have them now, when are we going to have them? No one I meet at National Right to Life is taking victory laps over last year's ruling. Abortion remains legal in the majority of states. Katherine Jacobs is a retired art teacher from upstate New York. Her state is one of a handful that strengthened protections to abortion this year, which is partly why she doesn't like telling people where she lives. I don't want people to think that just because I'm from New York, I'm I'm a pro-choicer, because I'm not. But Jacob says Roe getting struck down was a miracle, and maybe that will happen again. And don't we have to just keep going anyway? Just because of something that you've been fighting for so long isn't happening, you can't give up. It took half a century to overturn Roe. 
people at the National Right to Life Convention say it might be another 50 years for abortion to be completely banned in the U.S. But they're committed. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Pittsburgh. That story comes from NPR's partnership with WESA and KFF Health News. Even as many people push to further restrict abortion access, the laws already on the books began to affect people's lives immediately once Dobbs went into effect. People like Elizabeth Weller. There was nothing wrong with her, no development issues wrong. When Weller found out her baby was a girl during an ultrasound, she was overjoyed. She and her husband were preparing a nursery. She wasn't thinking about terminating the pregnancy or the strict laws prohibiting abortion in her home state of Texas. But about a week after the scan, she went for a walk and realized that something wasn't right. This burst of water just falls out of my body. And I screamed because that's when I knew something wrong was happening. Elizabeth told NPR she rushed to the hospital, where she learned that her water had broken too early and that the fetus would not survive. While there was still a fetal heartbeat, it could stop at any moment. And... She says, let's say if you get to the week of viability, which is around 24 weeks, I can't promise you that she will continue to live past that point. And because there's no amniotic fluid left, she's no longer going to be a developed baby. Her doctor said that prolonging the pregnancy posed a serious risk of a life-threatening infection. She was living in Texas. It was May of 2022, about a month before Roe was overturned. But Texas had a head start banning abortion. Since 2021, it had prohibited the procedure after six weeks. It was before many people even realized they're pregnant. As long as there was a fetal heartbeat, pregnancy could not be ended, except in the case of a medical emergency. And even when Elizabeth started bleeding, her case was not deemed an emergency. To them, my life was not in danger enough. Many doctors also felt trapped under the Texas law, which said almost anyone could sue a doctor not just for performing an illegal abortion, but for aiding and abetting one. Elizabeth and her husband had to wait, either for the fetal heartbeat to stop or for her to get sicker. And he and I kept telling each other, what, what, what is the whole point of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, and yet we're being pulled through this? And she did get sicker. She began to show signs of infection. At the same time, an ethics committee finally approved her request to be given care. Her daughter was stillborn, as expected. This is the one situation in my entire life where I have felt absolutely hopeless and that I was drowning and no one was willing to save me. The state of Texas put me through that mental anguish because I couldn't get the help that I needed. Elizabeth Weller's story is similar to that of many others in the states where abortion access has been restricted or banned over the past year. Others have still found their way to access. They've just had to travel further than before. The number of Americans who have had to travel 200 miles or more to reach an abortion provider has jumped in the year since the court overturned Roe v. Wade and 14 states banned abortion. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin talked about the growing distances with an economics professor. You heard that right, an economics professor. I came to it as a labor economist interested in gender differentials in labor market outcomes. That is the professor, Caitlin Myers of Middlebury College in Vermont. You cannot study gender differences in labor market outcomes without studying the effects of family formation and childbearing on women's careers. And you can't study that without getting into reproductive policy, she says. 
A few years ago, Myers wanted to see how the opening and closing of abortion facilities affected how far people had to go to reach one. When the nearest facility gets further away, fewer people can get abortions, usually because it's too expensive to travel. Myers mapped every abortion facility she could find going back more than a decade, and she keeps her map up to date. She says there have been dramatic changes in the past year since the Supreme Court's decision. The states that have experienced huge declines in access are Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Idaho also, I would say. A lot of driving if you're in Idaho. Of course, distance doesn't always limit access since now people have the option of getting abortion pills through the mail. But now that could be curtailed. There's a federal case out of Texas challenging mifepristone, one of the two drugs that's used for medication abortion. The case is expected to be argued at the Supreme Court in the fall. That decision could meaningfully limit access to medication abortion, which accounts for more than half of abortions nationally. I don't know what'll happen, but it could be bigger than Dobbs. And the map of abortion access in the country might change dramatically yet again. That's NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Since the ruling, Democrats in Congress have tried to codify Roe, and so far, they have not succeeded. Senator Patty Murray of Washington State spoke about it with my colleague Mary Louise Kelly this week. As we were just getting set up, you, you looked at me and said, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, what do you think about when you think about the Dobbs decision a year ago? Uh, you know, it's incredible that it's been a year, but it feels like a really long year. I, I remember when the Dobbs decision came down, I was on a plane flying home to Seattle, got off, and I was just... I just felt so stunned um, and sad, and I kept thinking, this is going to create chaos. Couldn't quite define that yet, but could say that it was going to happen. And here we are a year later, and I have heard story after story. I've seen state law after state law passed, and yeah, we are in a state of chaos for women's health. Well, and I gather you were hoping for chaos on a certain level. I saw an interview you gave to The Post last year where you said, I hope this moment of the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade will be a galvanizing moment, that there will be a national furor. Has there been? Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, we saw it in the election. Every state that has had... But we saw in the election Republicans took the House. Right, but every state that had abortion on the ballot, abortion rights for women, it passed. Women came out to vote to make sure that they could protect their rights. Have we seen dozens of states pass really horrific laws that have inhibited women? Yes. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, to push you on this, the Supreme Court struck down Roe. Republicans won the House. As you just nodded to, state after state has passed laws restricting abortions, mostly not the other way. Um, there's still all kinds of debate over the uh, abortion pill and mifepristone and where that will go, but increasing efforts to walk back access to that. And I'm sitting with you on Capitol Hill and there aren't protests outside every day. I get that there can't be protests every Look, day, but I, I when you say you it's caused difference. a furor, I'm not yeah, sure I, I see it. I can tell you the difference pre-Dobbs decision, post-Dobbs. Pre-Dobbs decision, women in this country knew that they didn't have to tell anybody that they were pregnant or that they were ending their pregnancy or that they had a miscarriage or had any complications from it. It was a private decision. They had access to the care they needed. That changed dramatically and continues to change as state legislators take these horrific steps 
to preclude women from getting the access that they need. And now women are realizing, and men, that they can't be quiet about this. They actually need to tell people this is happening to them. And the number of people who have a friend, a family member, someone they work with, uh, someone they know in college that has been impacted by this, it is growing and the outrage is growing. So let's talk about what you would like to see Congress do. Um, Last May, right after the draft opinion leaked, the Senate held a vote attempting to enshrine abortion rights. It failed. I guess I'm wondering, we're not able to get a vote through when Democrats controlled the Senate and the House and the White House. Today. What gives you hope? Today. And I think what gives me hope is that this has now become an issue that people really understand. And they understand that they have to stand up and fight for it, that we need to change the laws, we need to protect women. Do you hear any of that from your colleagues across the aisle, though, like Republicans in the House? Well, what I have, well, I'm not going to speak for the House, <laughs> a radical few, but what I can tell you is a number of Republicans have gone from a year ago saying, we're going to pass a national ban to just being quiet about it in, in most cases. Now, there are absolutely members of the Republican Party who are standing up and continuing to try and make this an issue. But I will tell you, as we see more and more of the fallout, the impact to women, in particular, treating women as if they are second-class citizens uh, in this country. You cannot determine your own health care. You can't even find your own health care. You can't even travel to another state to get your health care. The outrage that is being felt by women and their friends and their families is growing. Listening to you, you don't sound tired. I think a lot of people might sound tired after 30 years, it's been 30 years since you entered the Senate, and women arguably have had seen their rights narrow, not expand in that time. Oh, this is a battle of a lifetime. I was in college when Roe was decided. I had friends, one who was what we today would call, be called date raped, um, and she had no health care access, ended up having uh, an abortion by a doctor on the street and severely injured because he didn't have the right kind of care. I do not want to go back to those days. I don't want to go back to the days where women are put into institutions because they got pregnant. This is life. This is what happens. And uh, in this country, we have protected that ability for the last 30 years, and I will keep fighting every day till we get that back. That was Senator Patty Murray of Washington State speaking to my colleague, Mary Louise Kelly. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When patients talk to doctors, there can be a certain dynamic to the conversation, one that assumes that doctors automatically have all the answers. But the reality is that's not always the case. I always say I didn't have ESP. That's Dr. Jennifer Merez. She's a professor of cardiology at Hofstra Northwell Health, and she says it's important to go to your doctor with the right questions and information. NPR's Life Kit spoke to her for an episode on how to talk to your doctor or any other medical provider. Here's Life Kit host Mariel Segarra with some tips. Let's say you have a doctor's appointment coming up. Dr. Merez says you want to start by taking some notes. 
I always say, you know, I would joke and say, prepare as if you're going to your accountant getting ready for taxes. You certainly don't show up without receipts or whatever. Be ready to talk about your family history, what medications you're taking, and what life has been like since your last visit. Has anything major in your life changed? Also, if you keep track of your vital signs, like blood pressure, have those numbers available. And if you're having a symptom, let's say knee pain, be ready to explain. When did it start? What was I doing when it started? How long has it persisted? What makes it worse? Does it ever, ever get better? And maybe you don't remember exactly when it started, for instance, but you know, oh, it flared up at that party and that was in mid-April. It's detective work, right? You and your doctor are detectives. So anything you can describe, duration, time it started, you know, for joint pain, was I wearing heels, all of that stuff. The more information, the, the better. Based on your symptoms and family history, your doctor will come up with a differential diagnosis. That's a medical term for a list of possible causes. And then they might say, OK, we need to do more testing or here's how we're going to treat this. Sometimes you'll go to a doctor and tell them about symptoms and they will say something dismissive or just ignore your concerns. That is a warning sign. And I think if that happens, you need to hit the pause button and take control again and say, let's talk about my symptoms. Did you not hear me? This is really what is bothering me. This is limiting my life. I get up in the morning, this, this pain or whatever is bothering me, I cannot go to work. It's nagging. I am dysfunctional without it. I need your help. And if you're still not being heard, and we know that's a common experience, especially for women, people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ folks, people over a certain weight. You know, finding another doctor is definitely important. Dr. Merez points out that it is easier when you have insurance or you live in an area where you have lots of options. Now, if you do get a diagnosis, that can be a frightening moment and you might freeze up. It's okay to take your time. Take it all in. And I would say, reserve the right to say, okay, I'm going to come back with my partner, my friend. Having someone with you to sort of discuss a treatment plan is important. Some questions you might ask. What is actually happening in my body right now? What's the treatment? How does it work? How effective is it? Will this condition ever go away? How will it affect my day-to-day -day life? You can also ask for recommendations for a consult, another doctor to review your case. That is not rude. It's your right and it's your health. Dr. Merez says what you want to create here is a healthy partnership, one where it's okay to share your doubts and questions and take an active role in your health. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. LifeGate has a video full of more tips on this topic, and you can find that at youtube.com slash NPR podcasts. I'm Susan Levy. We want to make sure you know that there's more weekend edition tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. The COVID emergency may be over, but ERs are still overwhelmed. That story, the puzzle, and wait, wait at 10 tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your Sunday with us. We occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required. Employees and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, wbur.org. Coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, for 38 years, providing immediate loans with a variety of payment plan options. Learn more at empireloan.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke with his counterparts in France, Germany, the UK and Poland about Russia and says they will continue to monitor the situation. This after the head of the Wagner mercenary group said his forces are ending their march on Moscow. A year ago, the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to an abortion, and activists on both sides of the issue held competing rallies across the country today to mark the occasion. Three police officers in San Antonio are facing murder charges after the fatal shooting of a woman there yesterday. Police say it appears she was experiencing a mental health crisis and refused police orders to come out of her apartment. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Tomorrow marks 10 years since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act. That decision made it harder to fight racial discrimination in the election process. And while there was a recent legal win for voting rights advocates, many activists and legal scholars are bracing for more efforts to dismantle that landmark law. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang has our story. It's been called the most effective civil rights law in U.S. history. In the words of then-President Lyndon B. Johnson and its signing in 1965, it flows from a clear and simple wrong. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. But in 2013... I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. Chief Justice John Roberts led the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority in striking down a key part of the Voting Rights Act. It was a formula for determining which states and counties with a history of racial discrimination had to get any changes to their election rules pre-approved by the Justice Department or a three-judge court. Roberts said the formula was out of date. And therefore, we have no choice but to find that it violates the Constitution. The court's rulings since then have generally made it harder to challenge racial discrimination with what's known as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But this month, an unexpected decision for a redistricting case out of Alabama upheld the court's precedent about how Section 2 bans racial gerrymandering when voting maps are redrawn. Still, conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote an opinion that questioned whether it's constitutional to allow race-based redistricting indefinitely under Section 2. Kavanaugh, at the end of his four little pages in this case, basically said, could we go on doing this? Luis Fuentes Rower, a law professor at Indiana University, sees it as a signal about the next potential legal fight over the Voting Rights Act. 
So if that's the way he wants the case presented to him, that will happen soon enough. Another legal challenge against the Voting Rights Act is coming from Arkansas and is expected to reach the Supreme Court soon. It's about whether private individuals and groups who do not represent the U.S. government have the right to sue to enforce Section 2. There have been more cases brought on behalf of private entities in Section 2 than brought by the Department of Justice. Gilda Daniels is a law professor at the University of Baltimore who has helped lead the voting section of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. This idea that there is no private right of action flies in the face of what has been occurring over the last 40 years. The fact that it would be questioned shows that there are extremist approaches being taken to dismantle the Voting Rights Act. Voting rights attorney Jacqueline DeLeon of the Native American Rights Fund says with these efforts to weaken the law, there's still a need for Congress to pass new federal voting rights protections. It's a diversified strategy that Evan Milligan agrees with after winning that Alabama redistricting case at the Supreme Court this month. This is not going to be a one-and-done thing. Milligan and other Black voters in Alabama challenged their state's current congressional map, and the Supreme Court ultimately found that map likely diluted the power of Black voters. Now Alabama state lawmakers are planning to come up with a new map next month. Still, Milligan, who leads the civic engagement network Alabama Forward, has his eyes set on more voting rights legislation at the state level. And we also need to be thinking about why we don't have an amendment in our Constitution that explicitly recognizes the right of all U.S. citizens of voting age to vote and have their vote counted. Why is that not explicitly defined? There are complicated questions. But in the fight for voting rights, Milliken says, there are no overnight victories. Anzi Wong, NPR News. For Jason Isbell, the lyrics are everything. There's a warm wind blowing through the laundromat. There's a young man crying in a cowboy hat. That's always been clear to fans of his music. Isbell writes vivid songs about memorable, complicated characters. I think like a short story writer, sometimes you, you, you work from a more honest place when you just make people happen and then follow them around and pay attention to them. An HBO documentary released earlier this year revealed just how much pressure Isbell puts on himself to write. If I was making people dance, I wouldn't have sit there and waste my time on prepositions. <laughs> he and his band, The 400 Unit, are out with a new album filled with songs that embrace the uncertainty of life. Songs like King of Oklahoma. Isabel did most of the writing for Weather Vanes on the set of another movie, a Martin Scorsese film out later this year where Isabel makes his debut as an actor. I try to write uh, with this sort of sense of place just because it's a good way to start. Yeah. I was exposed to a lot of people that I didn't know, people that I didn't see every day, and, and I spent a lot of time either on my own or just sort of bumming around Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and it was really great for the songwriting process. That's one of the songs I want to talk about because that's such a great example of that classic storytelling song. You hear the story of this guy with a serious opioid addiction, what he's doing to feed it, how he got there. What's the starting point for that one? For me, I will start with a character, um, and I'll try to find the right details so we get sort of an overview of that character. And then I'll just follow him around, you know, and see what he does. I was emptying my bladder on a 20-foot ladder Should have climbed down and found myself some shade Doctor took a quick look and I got out the checkbook And left with a pocket 
It's sort of like you're doing three jobs at once. You're trying to tell the story and you're trying to paint this picture that people can visualize, but you're also trying to make something that's really singable, something that works as a song. And it's a it's a fun challenge. It's 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 not all that different from a crossword puzzle because you have a certain amount of space that you have to get a detail into. Yeah. I try not to have a finished product in mind when I start. You produced this album entirely yourself. What what was different about that experience for you in the day-to-day compared to other albums? We worked with Dave Cobb on the last four records, I think. And, uh, you know, I loved working with Dave. When I got sober 11 years ago, I thought it would be a good idea to turn over some control of that part of my work so mm-hmm. I could just do, do my job, you know, write the songs, bring them in and say, tell me what to do. And uh, Dave was great. This time, as I was writing the songs, I thought to myself, I think I can do this without screwing it up. You know, I think I can actually go in the studio and not take my ego in there with me so much and yeah. not feel like I have anything to prove and and just serve the yeah. song. Did that lead to any moments of you making decisions, any particular moments on any particular songs where maybe if you had a producer, you'd be pushing for something else? knowing that he could say no and you'd have that back and forth, but but you're in the moment of saying, okay, it's all up to me, so maybe this is the choice I need to make here. We spent a lot of time on the uh, analog synth on um, Save the World. It was tough, but when we finally got it, it was super rewarding. I guess I, guess I did kind of appreciate the synthesizer and Save the World, but I'll, I'll say to you as a parent of a five-year-old and, and a one-year-old, that's not... That's not what stuck out to me about that song. For context, this is a song about how a parent processes school shootings. Uh, it seemed like you were particularly writing about Uvalde. The problem with that one was I had to write it a couple different times because it's a delicate subject. It's extremely heavy, and it's so hard to write about something like that in a way that seems honest and, and true and right. And yeah. for me, coming from my personal perspective usually proves to be the best move on that all i know to do is say well this is how i feel well i mean the feeling of living in a world where that's a possibility is real for a lot of people and when you said the cops just let them die i heard the shaking in your voice and for a moment you began to cry For me, that jumped out because I have this visceral memory of the day that happened, picking my kid up from school and watching him play on the playground as as the news alerts made it clearer and clearer, just the scope of, of it. And, you know, just, just hiding that from your kid. And that's such a that's such a hard feeling that I feel like so many parents make a lot. Like, we know that we're not supposed to do that. We know that if we have these feelings and these fears that they're supposed to come out, and be expressed for what they are so they don't come out in different ways but but when you're in that kind of you know survival mode that you go into you think well i have to continue to take care of this person and teach this person how to function and also i don't know what to say i don't know how to explain this to a child you know i i I can't make this make sense so i'm just gonna shut up about it and bury it somewhere and that sucks can we keep it here Stay.
I don't have the idea that uh, songs like this are going to change any kind of policy or motivate anybody that hasn't been motivated before. I, I think it's it's more a matter of saying, "Hey, I know what you feel. I feel like this too." And and when people hear that and they hear it in a in a specific way, and it and it you know makes them feel like you know a little bit of a secret about them, then all of a sudden. At the very least, they don't they don't feel like they're all alone in those feelings. Yeah, the label branded this as as an album about grown up stuff. You know, that's that, that's how you <laughs> framed it. And listening through, I would say there's there's not a lot of resolution in a lot of these songs. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's a lot of drifting. Uh, if you insist, is a song that jumps out to me about two people almost circling each other and saying, is this working? Is this not working? I, I don't really know. If you insist on being lonely, can you leave a couple smokes? Is all that part of being grown up to you, just not really knowing what step is next? Yeah, that might be the, the number one thing about being an adult is, is figuring out when to stop looking for an answer. You get to a point where you go, okay, this is not my business anymore. You know, I, I don't know what happens after we die. I don't know what caused this problem. I don't know how to fix it. There's something there in sort of the, my own personal development of masculinity because I've always been the type of person who thought, you know, if there's a problem, I need to solve it or I need to suggest some sort of resolution. And being married for the last decade, um, it has occurred to me, better late than never, I guess, that sometimes your job is just to listen. Don't wash the cast iron skillet. Don't drink and drive you spill it. I want to ask a couple questions about the documentary that, that came out the other month. This is an HBO documentary looking back at, at the, the process of your last album, Reunions, which you talk in it at one point about this need to keep proving yourself and keep topping yourself and make sure that the next album is better than the last and always moving forward. And I can see the way that that's a positive artistic motivator, and I can see the way that that is a negative personal life thing to deal with in your brain. And I'm wondering, has that feeling changed for you at all over the last few years? Did you feel that pressure with weather veins? How did you work through that? I felt it, yeah, but once I acknowledged it, you know, going through the process of making that documentary, it helped me to, to understand how I was feeling about that. And it helped me to say it out loud. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the most obvious thing in the world, but it's the thing that I personally you know, don't get around to doing until way, way late. But when we went in to make weather vanes, you know, I didn't run from it. I didn't hide from it. I didn't try to turn it into something else. I just said, okay, this is a lot. I'm stressed about this. It's hard to go back in the studio and make an album and, and know that it's going to be compared to the work that I've done in the past, but I'm going to go in and do my best. And it really, really helped a whole lot you know I th it was just another case of me just trying to appear tough and, and not trying to actually be tough because the real brave stuff is when you just say it out loud it it, it helped a whole lot this last thing i want to ask you i mentioned before i've got a i've got a son who's five now um i listened to a lot of your music in the car and there was a moment about a year ago where i realized that he was intensely listening to your lyrics too, and he. Oh no! <laughs> it, it was mostly okay. It was mostly okay. Okay. There are a few okay. moments, okay. but 
he just started okay. asking really deep questions that as a parent, I was like, I don't actually have the answer to that. And <laughs> I thought I thought I I could get him to ask you one of his deep philosophical questions from your lyrics and see if you can help. <laughs> I would love it. Right. I would love it. This is this is my son Josh. Why can't the river take you back in time? Daddy said the river would always lead me home. But the river can't take me back in time. And that is dead and gone. And the family I didn't have the answer. Why can't the river take you back in time? Um, because the past, Josh, is a figment of our imagination. It doesn't actually exist at all because your recollection of the past, of going back, what would be going back in time, it, that's, that's from your perception. So what you saw and what you heard was only one little tiny piece of the whole entirety of the moment. So when you try to travel back to that, you can't travel back to something that only you saw and only you heard and only you remember in that way. We can't go into the past because the past doesn't exist. I might uh, might have to save that for when he's a little bit older, but that's a really good answer. He's five, <laughs> he's though. Five. Yeah, it's tough. Because <laughs> the river only goes one way, Josh. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's a good listener. I, I think yeah. not all kids pay attention to the lyrics like that. That's great. He's got a lot of questions, so uh, we, mm -hmm. we have for now kept listening and talking about it. <laughs> Jason Isbell, uh, he and the 400 Units' new album, Weather Veins. Is out now. Thanks so much for talking to NPR. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. I always do. This was my first day hosting the show. Thanks for listening. I hope you will join me again tomorrow 